Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of ANC's Matters of Fact. I'm Christian Esguera. Right, so this week, guys, uh, we have a very special guest, and he's uh, Dr. Benjamin Ko. Uh, he is the uh, head of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases section of the USD Hospital. He also holds clinic at the Asian Hospital and the, the Cardinal Santos Medical Center. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Ko, for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for inviting. Okay. Yeah. Of course, within the medical community, you're very popular already. But uh, when it comes to... Uh, well, uh, after teaching for so many years, practically yeah. everybody's my student. So I guess. <laughs> but of course, if you talk about, for example, the general public, uh, you became even more popular to the general public because of the series of blogs that you came out with uh, regarding uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Talk to us about the motivation because uh, you mentioned that you have... Uh, three hospitals. You're holding clinic in three hospitals. Yet, you still found time to, to actually blog about the pandemic. Well, uh, I write because um, it's a passion to do it. No, uh, it's, it's not a sideline. You don't make money out of blogging. Uh, me, for example, I don't. I don't put advertisements in it. But I, the reason why I did it was I wanted to make my, my friends aware about the disease. And uh, there's a lot of misinformation and misinterpretation actually of what's happening um, all around us if uh, you don't write about it uh, you don't put some sense into it and that, that's what I wanted to do I wanted to put some sense into whatever was happening including the mm. gathering of the data how to interpret the data and what is in store for the future because everybody's just just afraid of the virus it, it's a story uh, nobody wants uh, something new like this to just pop out from somewhere. But um, like all diseases, there, there, there is a story to tell. Mm. So in this particular pandemic, what is the, the story? Um, well, basically the story is that there, there are viruses that, that, uh, that just come out from, from, from nowhere. Right? It's something that we really actually don't expect. Um, we think of coronavirus as one of the regular viruses. We actually see that. I see it in some of the patients of Kawasaki disease and so on and so forth. Uh, but we, we really never try to document what coronavirus does. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there are mutations. And there are some coronaviruses that give you a bad outcome. MERS, for example. SARS mm -hmm. is another example. And they, they, they have they have higher death rates compared to um, other diseases and other viruses. Uh, the thing here is that we, this is one virus which we, we don't have a treatment for. Mm. So when the numbers started coming in, particularly from China, um, that was alarming because you know how it is when, when a lot of the countries don't, well, particularly China, when some of the countries don't reveal actually what the real data is. Mm -hmm. So they, lag, they were lagging for a couple of weeks before they truly announced that uh, there was an outbreak of a disease. And this is almost similar to their H1N1 outbreaks and all of the different SARS outbreaks that they had in the past. And of course, you know that there is a political power play uh, here, right? because you have this, the political standing 
uh, of China. Uh, actually, China is now under fire from a lot of countries because of that delay that you mentioned. Uh, yes. Well, of course. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm silent when it comes to the political aspect. But the, what I'm trying to say is that um, it's not good for the rest of the world not to know about an outbreak like this, especially the fact that 2019 was a very good year for traveling. <laughs> and um, this is the best way to accelerate a pandemic. The way people behave, the way people move, uh, this is the way to, um, to make sure that an outbreak is seen in every corner of the world because uh, the people travel. And when you have a delay, actually, in the reporting system, like, for example, you have four weeks. Four weeks, how many people have traveled in that, that three to four week interval? How many people have gone from Wuhan or any part of China all over and have gone to other parts of the world, visited them, and mm. uh, passed on um, the, the virus for that particular matter? You know, when it starts small, uh, and I've always said that, when, when you... Whenever we look at the curve, an infectious disease curve, an infectious disease curve always starts small. I tell my students that. It follows what we call an S curve. So when we say that there is an S curve, start small, and then as the diseases pile up, as the cases pile up, it starts to take a model of a letter S, like a normal distribution curve, but it's not normally distributed. It will peak. The, the dengue outbreak that we had last year, the, the polio outbreak, and all other outbreaks of diseases. Mm. It starts small. We don't realize that it begins to scatter. And by the time that most of us realize it, it is already at its peak. And so, 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 that's what, what the, so, so what was the, uh, the, the main reason you think, or the reasons why uh, we were not able to nip this in the bud? Was it the delay in the, the, in the reporting? Um, we weren't able to nip this in the bud. Uh, well, mainly because I, I'll be candid about it. We had one case out of three that we reported. Um, there were foreigners, okay? At that time, that should have set off an alarm already. We had one case out of three foreigners that died mm. from COVID-19. At that time, it was still called NCOV. Yeah. And, and that should have set off a, a distress signal already to us. That, that was what I call a red flag. Because uh, for, one, for one person to, to die in our territory, and then three of them having, uh, from three, three patients, that's like one out of three or 33% mortality. And how do you know that there, there aren't other people that got infected already along the way. Because mm. you, you always follow, you know, when, when you do infectious disease, you try to follow it. You, you try to map it out like a detective. You try to do contact tracing. You try to go back and see how did the person get sick? Because mm. that's important for any ID practice, practitioner. How did you get sick? Wasn't that done? Uh, what did you observe at that time? I think you were referring to the very first case outside China, the very uh, first fatality outside China, which of course took place unfortunately here in the Philippines. Yeah. I think in early February. In, 
was that early February or late January? Late January, I think, was the uh, detection of the infection, but the reporting of the death, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, first uh, first week or the first few days of uh, February. Of February, okay. So I, I know it was within that time period. It, it was within that time frame. What should so the, have been done then? Well, uh, I think the Department of Health tried to do what they needed to do. They, they started going around, trying to find out uh, who other people they came in contact with. The question is, well, I, I'm not privy to the information if they got tested. If they, they did first and second tier testing. That means that you try to test all the contacts. But by the time that you're able to find out from a person who arrived all the way from China going, Wuhan going into um, Cebu, and then from Cebu flying into Dumaguete, and from Dumaguete going into Manila, how many people have they, came, have they come in contact with is the first question. Mm. How do you do contact tracing for all of these people? Mm. Was it an accurate thing to do? Did they really look, look at all of the, the, the first and second tier? Because um, I know we have kits in order to, to detect um, infections from SARS-CoV-2, but the kits that we, we have are actually very limited. The initial kits we had were donations from, I think, the World Health Organization. And I think we had to send the, the, the samples all the way to Australia, right? Yes, that was another thing. We were sending things outside. We, we, we were not doing it locally yet at that time. So do you think that was a missed opportunity for us, the fact that there was a fatality during that period? Because I remember uh, Secretary Duque was very confident at that time because after that, there was a lull in cases, I think uh, about four weeks. Yeah, there's always a lull before the storm. Yeah, yeah. So, but they were, but they were quite confident at that time that they were able to to put it under control because there were no reports. Uh, I think uh, for for a total of about four weeks. Yeah, but, but it's that was a misopportunity at that time. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So what you need to do, and what we need to always remember is that um, most of the patients that you come in contact with, uh, if you have an infection, will be asymptomatic mm. until you hit um, the, a vulnerable group. That means that when, you, when a certain vulnerable group gets exposed to these patients who may be either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, that means they have uh, very mild symptoms, cough, cold, fever, just, just that, or a sore throat, but they're the vulnerable group, they have comorbidities, mm. that pushes them into death row. You get so, the point? Yeah, yeah. So what should have been done at that time? When we had these uh, cases coming from the foreigners, I remember the DOH said that there was uh, contact tracing done. But they think uh, there should have been uh, mass testing also at that time to make sure that uh, we, we got a clear picture of the uh, extent of infection. Well, the contact tracing, I don't know if it was um, done to, to what extent was it done. Like, for example, when I talk about first and second tier contact tracing, first exposure, and patients that got exposed, uh, including the relatives of those that got exposed to those that got exposed first. So it's like your first degree and second degree relatives get, get tested. So it's something like that in an environment. That's what, you, what, that's what I mean by saying uh, you do first and second uh, tier tracing. So that, that, that kind of contact tracing should have been done. I don't know if they just looked at the, 
the first tier or they were able to identify everybody. But you see, what happened after that was that there were cases that were being picked up in small aliquots, small numbers. There were a few positives, positives. And these positives that you, you actually get, these confirmed cases that you get, then you should do more contact tracing among them. Mm. Hanap, na, hanap ka na ng hanap eh. Hindi yung maghihintay ka ng... You, you cannot wait for patients to develop symptoms because when you do that and you wait for patients who have symptoms, you're only looking at the tip of the iceberg. So what should, what should have been done at that time? Let's say there was contact tracing, you were able to identify the people who came in close. The, the people that, yes, the, the people that you identify should have been isolated, should have been quarantined, and then they should have been retested until they are cleared of the infection. So basically, what we are doing now should have been Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So now we know better. But uh, essentially, that should have been done from the get-go because at that time, and I can't fault them for that. At that time, a lot of us had very little information and uh, knowledge on how to manage um, uh, coronavirus, in fact, uh, COVID-19. If you, you look at the timeline, in the beginning, everybody thought that this was just something that would last for a week. Or Remember? Yeah, it, it would just last for a week. The people were saying that, ah, oh, this is nothing. This is just like the cold. Everybody thought that um, the r naught of this would be anywhere between about one to two. It's, it's a, it, it has very low infec infection. And it, for the benefit of our uh, listeners, let's explain the r naught. So basically, you're referring to how many people can be infected by an infected person. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so two. Yeah. At least two. The, at the, uh, in the beginning, everybody thought that the R naught would just be around two. Um, now we know better that it, it, it ranges anywhere from about three to five. Uh, so all of this information are what we call hindsight. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, also people were saying that uh, this particular disease would peak on the third day, by the fifth day, would probably get better for pre-symptomatic patients. So, now so we know that it's more on pre-symptomatic patients, but for the majority of those that get infected and then go on to developing a severe infection or, or all the way up to a critical point, what's going to happen is that it's going to drag on. So the average number of days is 14 days now for the illness. And we found out about that only sometime in, late, in the middle of February. Do you think uh, we prepared uh, properly for this? Uh, we're, we're always prepared for many things. Uh, the, the, the beauty about the Filipino is that we're resilient. So I don't know if we really prepared for this. It just so happened that uh, I think we had one calamity after another. Mm. Um, remember sometime in, in, in January and, well, or February, uh, uh, within around that time, uh, Taal Volcano was, was our major distractor. That was in January. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that, and we had to deal with something like this also that, 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 that was coming into the picture. Mm -hmm. So, so far, uh, what do the numbers tell us? Uh, because there's this daily briefing coming from the Department of Health. Of course, I think the latest number now is uh, we have a total Nine, of at least 9,000. Confirmed yeah. cases, uh, yeah. more than 1,300 recoveries, and uh, unfortunately, at least 6, uh, 623 
fatalities. What do the numbers tell us? Are we actually peaking, plateauing? Well, um, the numbers are just numbers. <laughs> the, the reason why I say that, it, it's because, you see, we have a latency period when it comes to reporting. Um, and, and that's a problem I think that the Department of Health should attempt to solve. Uh, it's trying to. It, it has done a better job in the past few days in trying to resolve where all of these um, infections are particularly coming from. Um, but yet, there will always be late reporting. And, and I'll give you an example why I, I, I said that there, there will always be late reporting. Look at their number of in terms of deaths and in terms of recoveries. Let's, let's just look at the two. In terms of deaths and in terms of recoveries, we're almost, we're delayed uh, by seven days. That means that on the average, before a public announcement is made on death and recovery, it takes the, the government at least seven days on the mm -hmm. average, okay? Now, let's look at reports on, on uh, tests. Because that, that's one important thing before you can say whether the patient is a confirmed case or not. So you have to wait for the test results. The mm -hmm. test results can anywhere be between one day for some centers to as long as even 10 days for others. So when the center is incapacitated or that they, ha they have downtime or that they have a lot of people that get sick, they're not able to churn out the reports on the promised date. On the other hand, there are some areas, especially the private hospitals now, the private hospitals, so in my experience or some of uh, my friends and uh, patients that are able to have it done there, it is anywhere from a turnaround time of 24 to 48 hours. So that's fast. Yeah, that's really fast. So it, I, I'm worried about the fact that you have a lot of, like, of course, I, I like the, 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 the the way the government is addressing this issue by saying we're going to do 30,000 tests, okay? We're going to hit that target of 8,000, 9,000, 10,000. I don't, I don't even care if they do 30,000 a day. My point is, if you do all of those, what's your turnaround time? Because if that 30,000 is not going to give me meaning if I'm going to get the results three months from today, right? Right. Yeah, so we're still back to the point. I, it, it's a simple point that I'm trying to make. Can we get reliable results? Well, can we get reliable information on real time? Mm. Uh, the, the longest delay should at least be three days because otherwise, if the delay is too long, we will be approximating everything a week back. Yeah, and precisely. that's the reason why we get a roller coaster ride every day. Today more, tomorrow less. Next day more, tomorrow say less. Why? Because if you follow the same pattern, there are more tests being done, there are less tests being done. There's more tests being done, there's less tests being done. So you follow the pattern, and you will see there's more positive when there are more tests being done. There are less positive when there are less tests being done. So it's really not accurate anymore that the predictability becomes um, quite challenging. <laughs> so in this case... That's the choice of a better word. Sorry. So in this case, how do you interpret the numbers coming from the DOH? Because if you look at the graph, it looks like an earthquake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, actually, I, I changed the graph. Um, I was... I will, 
when when I blog, I I've I've changed the graph in my well my 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 daily update actually uh, for the data of the DOH has been transformed. I, I transformed it to what I call a logarithmic scale. So mm. if I use logarithmic scale instead of a linear, because what the DOH does is it uses a linear scale. Okay. So uh, what's the difference? The difference is that the logarithmic scale takes on the numbers as exponential growth. So growth rate siya. Hindi okay. siya yung exact number 285, 172, 320, 190. What do these numbers mean? Nothing. When I convert them into growth rates, they take on a curve. So they will follow a curve instead. And uh, for those that follow my blog, it's easier to understand it. Rather than you see the up, the swing, up and down, up and down. It's like an ECG machine that you don't understand what all these swings are, are, are taking into consideration. And I, I would advise the, 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 the Department of Health, if, you, if you have, they had to ask me, I would advise that they transform all their data into a logarithmic scale. It is easier to understand. So what does this logarithmic scale, which you are, which you are using, what does it say about the numbers? Well, it tells you now that um, we are coursing along. Okay? That means that we've taken, we, we've, we're in that curve. We're coursing along. Um, this is the part where people will always ask, have we flattened the curve? Of course, if we course along, we've not flattened the curve. What we need to do, actually, is not just to flatten the numbers, which is beautiful. No? When you say you're coursing along, you still have 200, 300, 200, 300, 200, 300 a day being reported. What I want to see is, are we bending the curve? Okay. We need Bending the curve means that we're bringing down now that growth rate. Diba? Kasi pag bumaba yung growth rate mo, mabibend mo na siya. Mm. And that's what you actually want to see. Because once you're able to bend the death rate, you're able to bend the growth rate, then you know that whatever mitigation you put in between is working. But, but, but how credible is this uh, preliminary interpretation that we are coursing along using that, that particular scale that you're using if there's a delay? I, I think the delay is from anywhere between uh, 10 to, uh, and 14 days. So how credible then is the interpretation? Well, the only, everybody asks me that. I always tell people the, the information we're getting from them is reliable, which means this is what they get. This is, this is the way they get it. This is all the information the Department of Health gets. At the time of reporting, that, that's the reason why they always say, at the time of reporting, these are the numbers that you see. So whether you will utilize the numbers in order to predict outcomes is a different story altogether. Mm. Because here's the problem. Uh, if you talk to the politicians, to the policymakers, Malacanang also is saying that... Uh, any decision that will be made regarding what happens after May 15, whether to lift or to extend extended uh, the, the, the enhanced community quarantine, will depend on data, will depend on science. But if the data, credible as they are, but delayed in terms of reporting, how credible then would the decision-making be? Oh, well, you answered the question already yourself, right? <laughs> By posting that question. Because... The, the data are valid data, okay? 
the reliable data. The question is, should you use that kind of data in order to say that your ECQ is working or not? Because they're late. Mm. They're so not accurate. They're not accurate. So it, it's like you know, saying, okay, let, let, let's go ahead and utilize this data for my grounds for locking down further. The question is, can the economy take it? Will the people be able to get back to normal lives? And you cannot keep using and saying, well, you see, we still have a lot of numbers. If you, see, if you, you, you tell yourself that and you say, well, we still have a lot of, of cases, the, the only thing that I can surmise from that is go back and tell you, why? Mm. And we've had the ECQ already for almost two months. Yeah. So why have we not dented the numbers? Mm. Ah, hindi mo naman pwede sabihin, pasaway kasi yung mga tao, the market is open, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it, it's like, um, it's like hitting yourself at the, on your back. You're, you're not really doing a good job. And therefore, and therefore, I go to the point where I will say that the ECQ isn't working. Isn't working. Yeah, it's not going to be work. It's not working because you've not dented anything, right? So there must be something wrong. If the numbers stay the same, in spite of in spite of the ECQ, the numbers are still the same. They've not, they, they've not flattened. They've not been bent for sixty days. Then it's not working. That means there there must be a problem. Ano bang hinahanap natin? But there are other things that we have not done. So what are the other things that we've not done? Why are there still so many cases? Because we've not, we've not done contact tracing. Mm. We've not done enough contact tracing. We've had, we've had very limited number of um, test kits until recently. When, when, you look at, when you go back and look at it, how pre you, you ask the question, Kalina. How prepared are we? On the day that you declare the ECQ, you should have been prepared. You don't prepare six weeks after the ECQ. Mm -hmm. Yon. I'm not... <laughs> that, that was quite uh, a, a, a prognosis. No? <laughs> no, but, don't, don't. Kasi, because this? I think there was a UP study saying that the ECQ uh, was actually working in terms of uh, reducing the doubling time of the cases. But again, there yes. was a qualifier in that report because they say, said that uh, the, this report uh, was also dependent on the uh, accuracy of data coming from the Correct. Data. Correct. See? So which, which tells you the point also. So the ECQ, actually the ECQ worked in the beginning. It was able to to bring down, because if there was no ECQ, I'm sure this would have been horrendous. The numbers would have been more horrendous. Mm -hmm. The question is now, okay, moving forward, we have data for the last 45 days. Uh, so what are we seeing? Right? So we're, so, so we're not flattening, flattening it yet, right? Yes, we're there. We're there at the plateau. But oh. we're, we've, not, we've not flattened it to any degree because... Uh, as even my, my, my blog followers would tell me, Dr. Ko, the major problem that we're getting is that the numbers are not coming in on time. 
is that the main reason or is it also the reason uh, is this also a reason we're not testing enough and we're not turning in uh, results as yes. fast as they yes. should yes because testing enough would mean that we, we you know we really need to test a lot all of the testing centers that we see are mainly found in Metro Manila I'll give you the perfect example for why why must testing even at random should be done. Let's look at Cebu as a perfect example. If you've seen Cebu's data over the last week, it's been on the headlines, right? You see at how many, every day they've been reporting over 100 cases. Uh, and that's from the whole of Cebu. Uh, if you look at Cebu City alone, they comprise the majority. But if you look and try to correlate, and not just look at data, you try to correlate with their testing center. Their testing center there is Vicente Soto Memorial Medical Center. And Vicente Soto Memorial Medical Center, uh, and this is not based on hearsay. It's actually based on the data of the Department of Health in their website on the COVID-19 tracker. You look at Vicente Soto and you will see that they have exceeded the maximum of 500 tests that that center can do a day. Mm. Which tells you that they're doing a lot of contact tracing. That the reason why they're testing a lot there, they're, they're getting a lot of numbers of confirmed cases because they're doing a lot of contact tracing. They're doing first and second year contact tracing. Kaka um, Inget. You, yeah, you, you, you correlate it with their death rate, and their death rate is just less than 1%, 9 out of 900 plus cases. Okay, so that's a, a bit of good news, right? Yes, yes. That, that's the way to go. That's what I'm saying. That's what I've been harping all along. That, you know, you plan to lift the ECQ, it's fine. Because we know we've already come to the point wherein the ECQ has maximized its role. Wala na eh. Kahit na mag-ECQ ka pa for 300 days, wala nang pupuntahan yung numerong yan. What to do next? The next thing that they should do is once you try to lift it, once you try to lift it, you must make sure, and as the WHO would put it, you must try to make sure that there is preparedness in that particular region, in that particular place. How do you prepare? We have to make sure that the, that, the, that area has their own testing center. They have a COVID facility where they can house all of the patients that uh, need to get isolated. They're probably asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Separate them from the community. I say that's the only way that you can sorry, address at decreasing the transmissibility of the infection. In the meantime, you can go on with your life. Yes, everybody else can go on with their lives. Okay. As simple as that. Here's another problem, doctor. For example, again, we go by the numbers, uh, which should, uh, uh, um, uh, let's say, prompt decisions when it comes to what we are supposed to do after May 15. Mm -hmm. But let's say we started to do more mass, uh, to do more tests, let's say, close to May 15. And those tests would show uh, the, the numbers shooting up. Wouldn't that uh, also be alarming because again you mentioned that the uh, the results will be dependent on the number of tests and how fast very good question the answer to that is you will have more cases when you do more tests but at the rate that we're going and the rate that we're seeing is that at least only 10 percent of the patients that we test so far end up being positive so even if we do let's say for granted 5,000 tests a day you would probably get about 500 uh, positive cases. 
not everybody is a new confirmed case. And not That's all, a, uh, let's say, 10% are severe, right? Yes, yes. There are two things. One is that although they will turn out positive, they are not confirm, new confirmed cases. You have to remember there's a difference between a new confirmed case and somebody who just ends up as positive. A positive patient may be somebody who is already positive in the past and will need to do a retest, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to show that he has two negative tests before you can say that that patient has even recovered, at least one to two. Some hospitals use one test alone because they're conserving their, their kits. Second is um, if you look at the total number of, uh, of patients that actually come down with severe infections, you have at least 10 to 15% that will be very severe. And of the 10 to 15%, you may have around uh, 5 to 10% that may require intubation or critically ill. But the rest, the rest are mild or pre-symptomatic or they, they will survive it. And if you look at the data of the DOH, which, which, which I like, no, because uh, if you go to the data drop, um, they're very transparent about that, which, which allows everybody to to call their data. If you go through their data, you will now see, if you look at the demography, the demographics, the majority of patients that are positive are actually between 20 and 59 years old. Okay. Below yeah, the younger age group, mm -hmm. which means that the mortality rate, that, that our death rate will probably be lower. If, if, if my prediction is right, huh? it will probably be lower because we have a very high young age group and the younger people have a better chance of better outcomes actually. If you look at the older age group, the 65% of the deaths are actually in the uh, 60 and above and only 4% are actually kids. So you have about a 4.5% in the pediatric age group. Doctor, let's also differentiate between uh, case fatality rate and mortality rate. Okay. Okay. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the second one won't be known until, until the end of the pandemic. Yes. Pandemic. Yes. Yes. That's the only time we compute for mortality rates. So that means when everything has been said and done and we've cleaned up all the data, we tell you that if you come down with COVID, the mortality rate will probably be like this. But the case fatality rate is on a day-to-day -day basis. We estimate that the case fatality rate will change from day to day. But as of now, the case fatality rate for the last 30 days has fluctuated between 65 to 7%. So, so basically, what's the reason why there are fewer uh, children who actually move to or let's say progress into severe cases compared to let's say the other ones this this pretty much is known already as far as we know right yeah yeah yeah, yeah well uh, the kids are more well perhaps their immune immune systems are more intact no uh, that's the first thing the second thing about children is that they probably do not get exposed as much as adults uh, and i think we're seeing that especially after the uh, ecq the kids are left at home. I, uh, I rarely get text messages from my patients that their, their children are sick. 
it's the same thing that happens when school starts. You know, when school starts, that is the best time for the pediatrician to earn a living. Why? Because all the kids are sick. They're always sick. They go to school. Somebody has a cold. They catch the cold. And the pediatric clinics are always full after uh, the beginning of classes. Because the beginning of classes here is during the rainy season. Okay, let's talk about medical practice uh, at the time of COVID, uh, at the time of the COVID pa- pandemic. Of course, uh, a lot of people are expecting that things won't exactly go back to normal as we know it, right? Mm-hmm. Medical practice, in your case, you are a pediatric infectious disease specialist. Uh, what are you seeing in the horizon after, let's say, the ECQ is lifted? Well, what I've been, um, in spite of the fact that there was an ECQ, I started clinic last April 13. Mm-hmm. So I hold clinic, but I only see uh, well babies. In, in short, these are patients that were delivered from the hospital and they will need their primary immunization because I think this is something that we've forgotten. And, that, and let me talk in two, two, two terms. One, as a pediatrician. Uh, as a pediatrician, the most important um, preventive tool we have is vaccines mm. because you know that as uh, for, for kids they're they they are not protected from any vaccine preventable disease because their immunity is very low they, they, they get a few antibodies from their moms at birth but the antibodies eventually fade over a two-month period over a two-month period all the way up to a year depending on the microorganism. So that means that they can easily catch diphtheria, they can easily get pertussis, and so on and so forth. And so you need to provide immunization to them. That's the reason why the government has a program on hepatitis B and BCG being given at birth. Mm-hmm. So because we're endemic for both diseases. And uh, so that there are no other um, diseases that will pop up um, at the wrong time, this is the wrong timing during the time of coronavirus, we need to protect the, the kids and make sure that those that are 24 months old and below, those that are less than two years old, be provided their primary immunization as necessary. So I started clinic because of that. But, but that, I do by, by appointment only. But has so that, doctor? Sorry? Has this been disrupted, the immunization, the vaccination program because of this uh, lockdown? Yes, yes, yes. Most of my patients, uh, the bigger ones, I defer. I defer and I reschedule them because they're catch-up. We call them catch-up immunization. In short, booster na siya. So, pwede kong ibigay at a later period in time kasi nakuha niya yung primary immunization niya. So, pwede ko siyang ibigay. The second point I wanted to drive at, so, so that means that I'm able to restart my clinic. I only see... Uh, four to six patients within that period. And I make sure all of my patients are 20 minutes apart. I give them uh, a checklist and that checklist I send them through email. They must make sure that they check check everything that is, it's like, you know, when you come, come home from a different country, they give you a little yellow card saying that you have to fill it up in the airplane before you drop it off at the airport. Yeah, it's the same thing that I do. But mine is a more comprehensive one, which I give them through email. They fill it up and then they drop it off at the clinic. At the clinic, no mass, no entry sila. 
what, what is in the checklist? Well, basically what's in the checklist is have they had fever in the past few days? Anybody sick in the family? Yes, no, yes, no lang naman yan eh. To screen the patients, did anybody develop cough, etc., etc. So uh, it's one whole list of, um, of inquiries so that I can, I, I, I can screen the patients online. Like how many uh, are there? There are, we think, about uh, 50. Uh, no, 10 questions that they need to fill up. I can send you a copy of what I do. Now, let's say yeah. they, 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 uh, let's say they failed in one question or one. Then I don't see them. Don't see I them. do telehealth with them. Mm -hmm. So I go, they, they can, they can go on Medify and uh, I do telehealth for them. So the, the, the questions include like, for example, do you and your child have fever? You and your child have sore throat? You and your child are experiencing cough and cold, shortness of breath, headache, muscle pain, diarrhea, and so on and so forth. They have to fill it up and then they have to sign, the parents have to sign below that all of the above information are true, correct, and complete. I don't like them lying. But that's the reason why... Um, I'm pretty careful with, with most of my patients. Uh, I, when they get to the clinic, I take their temperatures and I make sure that uh, I have PPEs available, at least a mask for them if they're not wearing a mask. But uh, no mask, no entry. And I make sure that I am wearing a mask. I change my, my gloves after seeing each and every patient. Uh, and uh, even the linen, is changed after every patient. I, I cannot see more than six because if I see more than six, wala na akong pera pang bilin ng lahat ng mga. <laughs> it's going to be too expensive to maintain a, a clinic at this time. Yeah, I can now, only, the, the amount of expenses, they increase, no? But, but you're going... Uh, yeah, but I don't charge them to the patient. I yeah. don't charge them to the patient. Since you're going to see uh, fewer patients uh, because of this uh, new normal, so yeah. that... Uh, let's say income, not just. Yeah, for... well, I, I, it depends on the doctor. I don't do this because I'm here to earn money. I do this because I like what I do. Mm. So it depends on the doctor. If they want to charge you to the patient, go ahead. The second thing is that it should not apply only to pediatrics, which means that it should apply to each and every doctor. I, I, I think I've said that once already in one of the fora that uh, I looked at the DOH data and they have. In 2013, we had 500,000 500, deaths over the whole year. That 500,000 deaths over the whole year means that's like around 40 plus thousand a month from different diseases, anywhere ranging from acute kidney disorder, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, stroke, et cetera, et cetera, down the lane. So most of them were actually non-COVID cases because we did not have COVID in the time of 2013. Now, if you look at the data, at ipatong mo yung deaths ng COVID, doon sa 44,000 na deaths, I am, that's seven years ago, huh? that we see each month, which means how many deaths is that addition to it? Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm saying is, is we're, we're probably lacking... Uh, having to care for non-COVID patients. Mm. And uh, a lot of patients are flying off the grid because of cancer, because of 
other diseases, COPD, emphysema, stroke, a heart attack, uh, because they're not going to get seen properly anymore. So that is a danger. You might lose yeah, we're, we're, we're all worried about COVID. We don't want to come down with COVID. You don't want, I don't want, nobody wants. But we can screen these patients. That's where telehealth, that's where telemedicine will probably help. We, we need, and I, that, like I was telling you, you know, um, what we probably need to do is we need to create space now for COVID versus non-COVID patients. Like how each hospital. Well, each of the hospitals are able to do that. Like once upon a time, you have only one ER, then you probably should have two emergency rooms. No? Or uh, you, we can triage from the get-go. So as much as possible, when you do proper triaging by phone first, and then when they get to the, the emergency room, then uh, you can minimize actually the COVID cases. Of course, there will always be patients that uh, will suddenly need um, ER care and you don't know if it's shortness of breath or pagdating niya doon in the emergency room um, is a sign that he, he or she has COVID or not. But that's the risk that we take. This new arrangement, this telemedicine uh, to go yes. with traditional physical consultations do you see this as uh, uh, something that would uh, have to stay as part of the new normal? Yeah, yeah, and it helps. Actually, I do that for my sick patients. You know, I tell my, my patients, 99% um, of you will come down with a viral infection because you have immunizations. Hindi kayo pwedeng magkasakit dahil may vaccine-preventable disease kayo. So you just make sure you get immunized on time. You're not going to get sick. Okay? The chances of you coming down with a, an illness due to a vaccine-preventable disease will actually be very much lower. So that's one. Second is if they do come down with any illness, uh, it's manageable. Most of them are manageable. Some, some of them just like to go to the clinic because they like to see me. They, they feel that, you know, well, that if the kids see me, they get better almost immediately. You, you know that effect na may hiyang, hiyang sa doktor. Now, when you get to see the doctor, the next day, uh, the kids get better. Uh, of course, I like that. But what I'm trying to tell you is 99% of them will probably just get better. The 1% will need medical care. And these are those that probably will not do better after the third day of illness. So that's when I ask them to, oh, you can have a CBC done, a urinalysis done, baka may UTI yan. So I don't know where the fever is coming from anymore. O baka may dengue yung anak mo. Kasi like for example, if hand, foot, and mouth disease lang eh, pakita mo na lang sa akin sa Zoom, I can see you naman. Mm. Di ba? I can tell. I'll just tell you. Put up the fingers of the kid. Oh, and put up the hands. Put up the feet. And then oh, stick up the tongue. For, for things like that. The only problem you get for telehealth is I cannot auscultate, but I think there are some apps that are able to take the BP uh, and provide them online already. We're doing most of the, of the checkup already. <laughs> no, naman. not really. They, they, they actually get opinions because most of my patients, and I don't take HMOs, uh, most of my patients actually um, respect my opinion. They, they, they'll ask me first, uh, is it all right to put a hot water bag? And uh, most of the treatments that I provide are not uh, 
that have nothing to do with medicine. As much as possible, if we can avoid taking a drug, then so much the better. Non-pharmacologic means, we call it. So basically, the first line of uh, consultation, you can do that over the phone? or Yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About 80% of them will not need any further consult. But how do they get, let's say, the, ano yung, uh, but the, the, the prescription? The, let's say they need to get uh, CBC, blood oh, test. Yeah, it's on the it's on the app. Okay. All I need to do is to type it, and then they'll get it. So they can go to the laboratory and get tested. Yeah. And yeah. They can yes. Yes, sir. Yeah. How about for those who have no access, let's say, to the internet, uh, let's say, no Zoom, not Xavi, they can uh, consult with you by phone. They well, my my patients are usually A and B, um, so. For the other patients that, that will not be able to afford that, um, I, I don't know. I, I have no, no, really not much experience when it comes to them. But uh, there are some that text my, because I don't give my mobile phone. However, I give my email. So if they're able to uh, get through me, through my email, then I answer them as I would every other patient. Otherwise, um, they can go through my secretary. Then, because my secretaries give their phone numbers away. So my secretary texts it to me, then I text it back to them. But that's it. Uh, as a final point, uh, Dr. Ko, uh, of course, uh, a lot of people are looking forward to the development of a vaccine for COVID-19. Mm. Target by the WHO is uh, 12 to 18 months. But mm -hmm. in time, in the absence of that vaccine so far, what should we do? How should we handle this pandemic? Well, we practice what we normally should. Social, the new normal. Social distancing, go out wearing a mask, make sure that we wash our hands. We have, if we don't need to go out, we don't need to go out. Um, I, I know the Americans don't like that. Uh, I was just watching the, the news uh, over lunch when I was having lunch and um, the people in the U.S. were really adamant regarding their having to stay home and so on. It's a political thing. They refuse to wear a mask as well. Uh, but it's also the same sector that, does, that refuses to have immunization for their kids. Am I correct? Yeah. Sila yung mas malaking advocate against vaccine. Yes. Yeah. They just want people to just get better on their own. The problem there is that um, you will take a long other innocent lives if you get sick because was, other people will get sick because of you. There was also a very disturbing warning which I read in your blog which you also mentioned in the previous uh, webinar. The perfect storm. Yeah. Disease outbreaks. Yeah. After this pandemic is over or if this pandemic uh, let's say drags on until yeah. the flu season. Can you talk about that? Oh, well, because you know uh, June is usually, well, the rainy months here is usually the flu season. Uh, while in the U.S. and in the Northern Hemisphere, it is winter. And that's the reason why the outbreak was so bad uh, in China. And it was, it scattered actually mostly in the uh, Northern Hemisphere first. Um, in the Philippines and in, in Asia, in Southeast Asia, the flu season is 
uh, because we're a southern hemisphere, is during the rainy season. Mm -hmm. So that's the perfect storm. Yeah, what will we do during the rainy season? We have a lot of flu cases. This, this is when you get a lot of flu cases. This is when you see also outbreaks of dengue because most of the water that, that, that gets collected is not disposed of well. Uh, you see also a lot of outbreak of measles. We've not had kids getting immunized for the vaccine because everybody's afraid of going to the health center or that there are probably few people at the health center. I know, I, I was surprised because uh, my secretary brought her niece to the health center um, the other day and uh, because the, 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 the little girl got bitten by the cat and they wanted her immunized against rabies. Unfortunately, there was nobody there to immunize her. Hindi daw pumasok yung health center. So, you know, these are the gaps that we see. Kasi these are, these are vaccines that will need immediate attention. You have a dog bite. What will you do? You need to get rabies shots. If there's nobody, they're going to give you the rabies shot. Everybody's afraid. So, so what should we do at this point? Because uh, June is just around the corner. Uh, well, um, that's a very difficult question to ask. So, for me, if you can get appointments already from your doctors and the doctors need to restart some of, especially the doctors, if they can start their restart their clinic for low risk patients, they should. I encourage them. And I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm doing a couple of webinars for to encourage doctors how to restart their clinics during the time of COVID. But we need to act as a team. Uh, it cannot just be about me and my fear about uh, COVID or it cannot just me restarting. I cannot handle all the patients. What happens if I have a patient that has a neurological problem and I need to refer to a neurologist? What do I do? Or if I have a patient that has a kidney problem and I need to refer to a nephrologist, what do I do? We are all stuck in limbo. And, you know, some of the patients uh, will deteriorate because we're all afraid of a virus. I know that, you know, if, if, I guess it's easy for me to say that and say, now, oh, you're not afraid of it. I am. Of course I am. Everybody is. But we just need to be, take extra care. To, we, we need to be extra careful about this situation. It's a very important uh, piece of advice, uh, Dr. Ko. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast, uh, Dr. Benjamin Ko. A lot yeah. of lessons from you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Catch us again next week for another edition of the Matters of Fact podcast. Mm -hmm.